great pleasure. It's an honor to be here, and a pleasure in this, this really beautiful campus. It's gorgeous. You're very lucky to have a college like this. It's even more beautiful than Watsika, I think. Here. <laughs> so I'll just jump in. In a very brief, lucid, and witty essay published in 1945, the Protestant literary scholar and apologist C.S. Lewis addressed a common objection to the practice of petitionary prayer. This practice, of course, is not confined to Christianity, but at least in relation to the Christian conception of the deity, it can seem to make little sense. The problem is very simple. If God is all wise and all good, what sense does it make to ask him for things? He's already perfectly aware of our true needs, and he already wants to provide for them. So many of our requests will be ignorant and misguided, <coughs> and the others, it seems, will be unnecessary and superfluous. Lewis says that in his experience, the typical way to deal with this problem among people who did not reject prayer altogether was to regard petitionary prayer as only the lowest sort of prayer. Far above that would be simple communion with God, they said, and abandonment to God's will. This higher prayer does not try to give God advice or twist his arm. And that's prayer, that would be prayer for educated adults. Right? The other sort, they said, asking God for things, would be the prayer of children and savages, basically. But Lewis is not satisfied with that answer, which is good, of course. And he's not even sure that the simple communion sort of prayer is higher. In any case, he says there's nothing especially high about abstaining from making requests if your only reason for doing so is that you think it would be pointless to make them. And above all, of course, petitionary prayer is part of the whole Christian tradition. Jesus himself practiced it, and he exhorted his followers to do so and taught them how to do it. So Lewis wants to explain why requests made to an all-wise, all-good God are not pointless, are not in vain. Now, I think this question about prayer does come up. It comes up maybe with some frequency in people's minds. And I think maybe it should come up at some point in our religious formation. Working it out is a way of getting clearer about what we're doing when we pray. And I think that's all to the good. Knowing, knowing better what you're doing usually helps you do it better. So the first thing I want to do then is to present Lewis's own answer to the question. It's quite clear and it's quite straightforward and I think it has a kind of initial plausibility about it. In fact, I think probably gives voice to the way in which many thoughtful people who pray mm, conceive of what they're doing. 
Then, just briefly to show that Lewis's answer is not an isolated one, I will also mention um, a nearly identical answer offered by another 20th century British thinker named Peter Geach. Then, after presenting their answers, Lewis's and Geach's, I'll, I'll raise a couple of problems that I think they face. One problem has to do with the conception of God, the conception of the deity that the answers imply, and the other has to do with the importance or the significance that those answers assign to our prayers in the general scheme of things. And then I shall turn to the account of prayer laid out by Thomas Aquinas. I am going to say something about Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> Thomas's view actually is surprisingly different, I think, from Lewis and Geach. And I find it more satisfactory. I'll, my discussion of Thomas will, in fact, be a good deal longer than, than my discussion of those two authors. And some portions of it will be, I think, a bit challenging. They are for me. Uh, because of the metaphysics that it involves. And I think there's just no way to avoid that. Right? We've got to do some metaphysics. Yeah. When I get to Thomas, I'll explain more in detail how I'm going to proceed. But first, Lewis. Lewis's basic strategy in defense of petitionary prayer is a kind of reductio ad absurdum. The idea is if God's wisdom and goodness made it senseless to pray for things, they would also make it senseless to do anything. He says, quote, if it is foolish and impudent to ask for victory in a war on the ground that God might be expected to know best, it would be equally foolish and impudent to put on a Macintosh. That's a raincoat, you know, in British, a Macintosh. Does not God know best whether you ought to be wet or dry? Lewis presses this comparison between prayer and action. When we act, we cause things to happen. They wouldn't happen if we didn't act. They depend on our action. Of course, we get our power to act from God. And that's just how we should think of prayer, he says as a divinely ordained way of causing things. God has made some things depend upon our prayer. They wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. He grants there's a difference. In the case of action, at least the immediate effect is quite certain. His example, he says, you can be sure that if you pull up one weed, that one weed will no longer be there. That's quite certain. Right? Obviously, praying for things doesn't make them so certain because the efficacy of prayer is at God's discretion. But Lewis says this isn't because prayer is weaker. It's because it's stronger. It isn't, prayer is not intrinsically limited in space and time the way our, our physical actions are. Right? You can pray for anything, anywhere. And so God has retained a kind of discretionary power over it so that it doesn't get out of hand. You know, it would be too much. But that's not, that's not an objection to the idea that prayer has causality. If God lets us cause things at all, there's no reason why he shouldn't let us cause some things through prayer. 
He quotes, Lewis quotes a line from Pascal. Pascal says, God instituted prayer in order to allow his creatures the dignity of causality. Lewis gives, gives us a comparison, an analogy to convey the big, the big picture that he has in mind. It's pretty simple, and I think it's really important for assessing his view. So, this, so pay, take, take note of this comparison. He says, quote, this is a quote, God has not chosen to write the whole of history with his own hand. Most events that go on in the universe are indeed out of our control, but not all of them. It's like a play in which the scene and the general outline of the story is fixed by the author, but certain minor events are left for the actors to improvise. God made the matter of the universe such, we can, such that we can, within limits, do things to it. And similarly, he made his own plan or plot of history such that it admits a certain amount of free play and can be modified in response to our prayers. So keep in mind that comparison with the, the play or, the, or the, the story. Now, as I said, Lewis, he's not alone at all in this, in this view about prayer. Maybe some, I don't know if you've heard of this British, this other 20th century British thinker, Peter Geech. The philosophers have, I'm sure. Okay. He was a very fine Catholic philosopher, great philosopher. His own views on prayer are not exactly identical with Lewis's, but he agrees with Lewis on the points that I mentioned. On those points, they agree. Like Lewis, Geach judges the petition, that petitionary prayer makes sense because it enjoys some sort of causality. And he's quite sure that an essential part of Christian teaching is that prayer causes some things to happen. Also, and this is the most important thing for me, his way of explaining how our actions and prayers fit into God's plan is quite similar to Lewis's. In fact, Geach gives us a comparison of his own. It's not a comparison with a story. It's a comparison with a game of chess. This is a quotation. He says, God is the supreme grand master who has everything under his control. <coughs> Some of the players are consciously helping his plan. Others are trying to hinder it. But whatever the finite players do, God's plan will be executed. Though various lines of God's play will answer to various moves of the finite players. No line of play that the finite players may think of can force God to improvise. His knowledge of the game already embraces all the possible variant lines of play. There's Donald. So keep that in mind, too, the comparison with chess. Now I want to raise a couple of problems with this view. One is this. The account, this account does seem to make prayer fit in with God's being perfectly wise and perfectly good. Whatever happens and whatever we ask for, God will find the best way to respond. That's clear. That's fine. But does that account fit with God's being totally immutable? That is never undergoing any change at all. His wisdom will enable him to judge rightly about any fact that's presented to him and any prayer. And his goodness will lead him to respond to everyone 
in the best possible way. And neither his goodness nor his wisdom change. We can grant that. But on, on this account, on Lewis's account, something in him does seem to change. His knowledge of the facts, or if you want, his information, the information that, he, that God has, changes. If you think of him as the playwright writing the script, his initial information consists only in the original script. That doesn't change, but it doesn't include those improvisations of the actors that come up during the performance of the play. The playwright simply has to watch and learn what those are right, as they happen. They don't affect the final outcome at all. They don't affect the, the path, the, the basic plot of the drama, but they do add something to what he originally had in mind. Lewis goes so far as to say that God's plan can be modified in response to our prayers. That certainly sounds as though he didn't always know about them and as though he's continually adjusting his plan as he finds out about them. And if we think of God on, the, on Geach's model of the chess master, I think the same point comes out. We can grant the chess master's command of chess is always perfect. It doesn't change during the course of the game. He doesn't become a better chess player by playing with us. But he does have to see what the other players do. Geach says that various lines of God's play will answer to various moves of the finite players. A chess master may know in advance how to answer any possible line of play, but that knowledge doesn't tell him in advance which line the other will choose. He knows this only by seeing the other's choice when it's executed. His response will always be perfect, but his knowledge of the moves that are actually made in the game changes as the game itself progresses. So again, it sounds as though God will be acquiring new knowledge, new information. It sounds as though he'll be undergoing at least a little bit of change. These changes, I grant, these changes may not sound like they're very important. They're only additions to the information that God has, the, the facts at his disposal. And those facts, at least on Lewis's and Geach's account, those facts are not really very significant. So it's no big deal, you might say. But still, they are changes. And to say that God can undergo any sort of change at all, even the smallest sort, is to make a very big claim in the end. In fact, it's to go, among other things, it's to go directly against the teaching of the church and against the explicit, I think, the explicit teaching of Scripture. St. James says, All good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no alteration or shadow of change. Not even the tiniest change. Nothing. Not even a shadow. So that's one problem, I, I think, we can find in that account. I grant it's a little, it's a bit abstract, it's kind of metaphysical. Uh, but there's also another problem, which I think we really ought to feel the force of. And it's this, both for Lewis and for Geach, God has a general plan that's going to be executed no matter what we do. Right? Our actions and prayers never do anything more 
than fill in details. Lewis himself calls them minor events. On Geach's chess analogy, what the master's opponent does can't possibly affect the final outcome. You're still going to get checkmated on move 42 on square so-and-so. Right? doesn't matter what you do. In short, the Lewis and Geach explanation succeeds in making our action and prayer sensible. They affect something only by making them trivial on the whole. In its essentials, the execution of God's plan is inexorable, and it doesn't really depend on our choices in any way. Geach did say that whatever the finite players do, whatever they do, God's plan will be executed. So it sounds like it doesn't matter. Perhaps Lewis and Geach would recoil from the thought that nothing we do makes any big difference. But what they say, the idea they put forward, I think really does suggest that. And I think we ought to recoil from it. I don't think that's right. So now let me turn to St. Thomas. And I want to show how different his view is. But I'll try to lay it out in three steps. First, I'll present his basic conception of petitionary prayer. And to the extent to which he does agree with Lewis, because he does agree to some extent with Lewis and Geach as regards prayer's causality. Then I'll explain the difference. First, with regard to that issue of God's immutability or unchangeableness, and then with regard to the importance or the significance of our prayers and our actions. And I'll finish with a couple of remarks about what Thomas thinks we're really doing when we pray at least when we pray the way we should. Now, Thomas would certainly agree with Lewis that what makes petitionary prayer sensible, or in Thomas's word, suitable, is its causality. Like Lewis, Thomas argues that if God's perfect wisdom and goodness ruled out asking him for things, then actions such as walking in order to get somewhere or eating in order to be nourished would also be ruled out. And that's ridiculous. Of course, God does bring many things about for us without our asking for them. Nevertheless, Thomas says, and this is a quote from him, God wishes to bestow certain things on us at our asking. And he does so for the sake of our good, namely that we may acquire a certain confidence in turning to him and that we may recognize in him the author of our goods. Thomas goes into the causality of prayer in some detail. In general, he explains petition, any sort of petition or request, is one way in which reason, the mind, causes something. There's another way, too. Another way in which it does that is by command, the act of command. And those are two different acts. A command, he says, is directed towards some agent or some power that is subordinate to the commander's reason. Right? And it puts that agent or that power under a kind of necessity <coughs> to fulfill the command. By contrast, a request is directed to another rational agent, either an equal or even a superior to the one making the request, 
unlike a command, it doesn't impose necessity on the fulfillment of it. But still, a request does serve as a kind of cause of its fulfillment. It does so, and this is Thomas' word, Thomas's word, it does so by disposing for the fulfillment of it, for the thing that is requested. However, at least in the case of prayer, the person whom the request disposes is not the person to whom the request is directed. It neither informs God of the petitioner's need for what is requested, nor bends his will toward granting it. The person whom prayer disposes is the person who prays. The causality proper to prayer is this for St. Thomas. It's making the one who prays fit to receive what he prays for, what he or she prays for. It does that simply by, I would say, orienting toward God the person's desire for that which is prayed for. The theologians have a word for this. If nothing else, maybe you'll learn this word. This is kind of an unusual word. They call this efficacy proper to prayer impetration. Impetration. Which comes from the Latin impetro, impetrare, which originally just meant to achieve something or to bring it about. It eventually came to mean to get, get or obtain something, and finally to get something by asking for it. To impetrate is to really get something, but to get it by asking for it. So it's more than just the asking, but it's getting by asking. So the soul, I think we can think of it like this, the soul in prayer is like a little bird, a hungry little nestling, which is opening its beak to squawk, right? And just by doing that, it can receive the food that its mother wants to give, it, give to it, okay? just by opening its beak. So our prayer is like that squawking. Maybe the angels look at it like that. They look at, the, at our prayer like that. We're kind of this, this little mostly squawking, but that's how we can be fed. Okay? Before considering how Thomas's view differs from that of Geach and Lewis, let me just say a little more about this idea that prayer disposes us to receive things from God. The idea is that prayer itself, when it's good prayer, is that disposition, really. It is the opening of the nestling's beak. I mention this because it can also happen, and it's a good thing if it happens, that some things result from our prayer which are not really effects of the prayer as prayer, are not really impetrated by the prayer, use that word, that is obtained precisely because we asked for them. Rather, they can be effects of the prayer insofar as that prayer also happens to be an act of charity. It is love of God. Because prayer, when it's made out of charity, like any other charitable action, is meritorious. It deserves a reward from God. And God may therefore reward it and he may do so even by bringing about, the, the, bringing about the very thing that we ask for. But that's not the same thing as the impetration of prayer. The impetration is not a matter of merit. In fact, God sometimes is pleased to grant the prayers of persons who do not have charity at the time when they make the prayer. And they don't merit, they don't deserve to have their prayer he grants their prayers out of sheer mercy. 
I think this is really important. Nevertheless, even those prayers are in themselves a kind of disposition to receive the things that are prayed for. And in that way, they are causes of receiving those things. Of course, it has to be genuine prayer. It's not just a question of mouthing the words, obviously. It's something interior, the disposition, just as prayer itself. It's something in the soul. But the impetration that's proper to prayer, Thomas says, is chiefly a matter of faith. It's usually a matter of faith. Faith moves mountains. By faith, one is certain of God's omnipotence and mercy and thereby hopes for his gifts. The root of prayer's efficacy is faith in God's wisdom and love and power, faith in his loving care for us, faith, that is, in his providence. And that brings us to the, to the problems. The problem, especially, first of all, of God's immutability, because it's a question, really, of the immutability of his providence. So, Thomas says, prayer would be useless if God took no interest in the world, obviously. There has to be such a thing as God's providence for prayer to make any sense. Mm. On the other hand, prayer would also be useless if creatures had no real influence in the course of events in the world. Or in other words, if God were the only real cause of what happens. In that case, even our choices would be useless. They wouldn't really be causing anything, even if it looks like they are. So if prayer makes sense, then God's plan for the world, or what Thomas calls the order of God's providence, must allow a creature to be able to make a difference by its action, by its choices, by its prayer in the course of events in the world. Nevertheless, and this is where Thomas really parts company with Lewis and Geach, Thomas totally rejects the idea that our prayers and our actions somehow fill in details that God's original plan leaves open. For Thomas, the eternal plan of God's providence covers every single event that ever happens, however small. And no part of God's plan is a result of creaturely input. God receives no information from us at all. His knowledge of the created world and of all the changes in it is always perfect and utterly changeless. He eternally visualizes, I think we can say, or envisions everything that ever happens. And he can do so because everything that happens depends totally on his will, his eternally wanting or permitting it to happen. And because, of course, he knows his own will. It's not the being or the occurrence of things that lets God see them. It's his envisioning of things that lets them be and occur. Now, as I said, this doesn't mean that only God causes things. His vision of the world includes creatures that are also causes. They get their causality from him, and he knows how they will exercise it. They cause what he internally envisions them to cause. But God also makes different created causes function in different ways. Some of them produce their effects by necessity. That means they have no power not to produce those effects. Neither they nor any other creature can obstruct 
or prevent those effects. But other causes do have such power. They may act and they may not act. They may do this, they may do that. In some cases, they themselves determine whether and how they will act. And our wills are like that. Human will is like that. That is what it means to say that we have free choice. I think this is really important for Thomas. Our choices are really free. Right then, when we make a choice, it's in our power to make the opposite choice. We are not forced or determined to make the choices that we make by any, by any clause at all, not even by God. The fact that God eternally envisions everything that we do and that it all depends on his will does not mean that everything we do, we do by necessity. Now, this is not easy to understand. I think that's pretty clear. At least is, for me, it's pretty hard. I, think, I, hope this, I hope you have that same experience. One reason why it's hard is that it is something unique to God. Nothing within our own direct experience is like that. We ourselves are not like that. When we, in our own little domain, can make certain that something will happen, it's only because we can take away or block the possibility of it's not happening. Okay? So I can make certain that the pen will fall. I can make that certain because I know the pen is tending to fall. Right? And I can remove every obstacle to its falling. So it falls. <clears throat> By contrast, God does not have to make it impossible for things to act otherwise in order to be certain of how they will act. In other words, God knows everything that will happen, but he does not predetermine everything. And Thomas's ultimate explanation for this is quite metaphysical. He says, this is a quote, the divine will, God's will, must be understood as outside the whole order of beings, as a cause pouring forth being as a whole and all its differences. That's pretty metaphysical. Right? Metaphysics is the science of being. Right? He causes being as a whole. In other words, God does not just cause all the things that there are, all the beings. He causes being itself. And he causes all the different ways of being. Those differences include necessary and contingent beings. That's the opposite of necessary. The power to be one way or another. That's contingency. According to his plan, God makes some things come about necessarily with no power, no potential not to come to be. But he makes other things come about contingently with power not to be. His plan never fails. If some created cause fails to produce some effect, the failure itself was part of God's plan. But if the cause succeeds, that is not always because it has no power to fail, nor is it because God has blocked its failure. He has known eternally that it would not fail, but not because it could not fail. It could. He infallibly knows, but does not predetermine our choices or the actions that we freely choose to perform, or the prayers that we freely choose to address to him. This is extremely important, I think. Our prayers are themselves among the things that fall under God's eternal plan. They do not come into God's plan from the outside, so to speak, and lead him to change or modify it. 
Thomas knows that it can seem as though the immutability of God's plan makes prayer useless. But this, he says, he says, this is because we imagine that our prayers fall outside his original plan. We fail to consider that the very existence and the very efficacy of our prayers are themselves part of God's plan. We find it hard not to think that we are trying to give him information or to change his mind. I think this is why the immutability of God and his providence, they, they kind of disconcert us more, and they can, when we're thinking about prayer than when we're thinking about our ordinary bodily actions. When we're thinking about what we're going to do, we're focusing on the things down here, the things around us, and God is maybe a little bit in the background. Right? Even if we know that the success or the failure of our actions depends upon his will, we're not led to imagine that our efforts are aimed at producing a change in him or in his plan. But when we're speaking directly to him in prayer, that's how it can look to us. So we really have to make an effort to get beyond that look, the way prayer kind of looks to us at first. Which is to say, we have to make a special effort of faith. It comes back to faith. It's really fundamental. In short, God has eternally disposed that some things happen because of and in answer to human prayer. If, as the saying goes, man proposes and God disposes, God disposes for the proposal, too. Thomas says, we pray not in order to change the divine disposition, but in order to impetrate that which God has disposed to be fulfilled by the prayers of the saints. Or in other words, as Gregory the Great says, so that by asking, men may deserve to receive what Almighty God from eternity has disposed to give. And yet we pray freely. That's part of the plan. And what happens because we pray would not, would not happen if we didn't. Things really depend on our prayer. So now let me turn to the question of how significant our prayers are, according to St. Thomas. Just to repeat, on his account, neither our actions nor our prayers fill in or modify God's plan. They have no effect at all on the plan's formation. That's eternal. For Lewis and Geach, you remember, our prayers do have some effect on the plan's formation, but it's a very small effect, filling in some details. For them, the things that depend on our prayer are incidental or marginal to God's overall purposes, to the plot of the drama or to the outcome of the chess game. Now, this is not at all how Thomas sees it. Regarding God's plan, Thomas draws a distinction. He distinguishes between the plan's formation and its execution. In the plan's formation, we play no role at all, not even a small one. But in its execution, we play a huge role. The role is not at all confined to minor events, at least not unless the salvation of God's elect is a minor event. I'm talking about Thomas's understanding of that special part of divine providence, which he calls predestination. So let me spell this out a little. 
He has a concept of predestinations. The eternal plan of predestination, Thomas explains, is quite certain and fixed in every particular. But, and this is the key point, and this, I think, distinguishes his concept of predestination from certain other ones. This is not at all to say that the persons who are predestined will be saved no matter what they do, inexorably. Their salvation depends on what they do. And they are not predetermined to do it. They do it freely, having the potential not to do it. And God does not block that potential so as to make them do it necessarily. He knows that they'll do it, but he doesn't determine them to do it. As St. John Damascene says, God neither wants malice nor compels virtue. He doesn't compel virtue. That is, predestination is not predetermination. They're not the same thing. Thomas goes so far as to say that in its execution, predestination itself is, quote, assisted by the prayers of the saints. We help predestination. If we're saints, I guess. He explains, a person's salvation is predestined by God in such a way that whatever leads that person towards salvation also falls under the order of predestination. Whether it be one's own prayers or those of another or other good works, without which one does not attain salvation. Whence the predestined must strive to work and pray well, because through means of this sort, the effect of predestination is accomplished in a sure way. And for this reason, it is said, quotes St. Peter, labor more that by good works you may make sure your calling and election. Just a little bit later, he virtually anticipates that quotation from Pascal that Lewis gave us. Thomas says, God uses intermediate causes of this sort, causes lying between him and what he ultimately intends, quote, so that the beauty of order can be observed in things and to communicate even to creatures the dignity of causality. Obviously, that's not, that beauty is not just a sort of ornament. A great deal can hang on the creature's causality. On Thomas's account, the things that, make, that it makes the most sense to pray for are the biggest things. If you pray for rain, you might get it, you might not. And it might not even be smart to pray for it. You might need the rain. You might need not to rain. But if you pray for grace, for virtue, for final perseverance, that always makes sense to pray for those things. Especially final perseverance. You know, we can't merit final perseverance. But we can pray for it, and we should pray for it. Wow. And think how great are the things that Jesus himself teaches us to pray for in the Our Father. So let me close with just a couple of thoughts. The first is connected with what we just considered. This causality of ours can extend very far. In order to be sure of accomplishing his will, God does not have to limit our efficacy to minor things or incidentals. If we say that he does, if we think he does, it's, it's, what we're doing is putting his causality and ours almost on the same level. It's parts of the scenario that are bigger than either of us, right? 
it's thinking of God as though he's kind of the majority shareholder right, in some kind of commercial venture. Right? So he's, he's got the majority, so he calls the, the big shots, right? But we've got little investments and we add something right, to the picture. Right? But that's not the way it is at all. We're not on the same level. Thomas said, God is cause of the whole order of beings, cause of the nature of being itself and all its differences. And he's also cause of the nature of causality itself. Okay? And of all the hierarchies of causality that there are. So he's not part of the picture. He's making the picture. That's the point. We're not praying to Zeus. You know? We're not praying to Zeus or to Thor or to Google. Okay? We're praying, or Amazon, or I don't know. We're, we're praying to Almighty God. Right? Maker of heaven and earth. We're praying to the cause, the universal cause of being as being. Right? I think we can say that Christian prayer is an exquisitely, exquisitely metaphysical act right? in that sense. The other thought concerns that question that Lewis raised. Is simple communion with God and abandonment to his will not better than asking him for things? I would say that on Thomas's account, it's a bit misleading to oppose those two. Right? Of course, we have to be detached from some things, especially material things. And about material things, we often don't know what it's best to ask for. And maybe in that case, it's better just to leave it up to God. Maybe, maybe that's true. But clearly, he wants us to ask for some things. His chosen ones cry out to him day and night. And again, when we pray for the things that pertain to our salvation, we can be totally sure that we're not making a mistake. In fact, we are doing his will. We're serving him. I think this is the most important point of all. Thomas says the prayer is an act of the virtue of religion. And religion, he says, is really the same thing as holiness. They're two names for the same thing. I mention that because maybe some of you are familiar with a, a great old philosophical writing on the topic of holiness uh, by Plato called Euthyphro. I don't know if any of you have read that. Euthyphro. Okay. It's a great guy. It's, it's, it's amazing. But there's a, at one point late in the dialogue, Socrates gets his young friend, Euthyphro, to admit rather reluctantly that he, Euthyphro, thinks of religion as a kind of commercial arrangement with the gods. Right? So the idea would be that with our sacrifices, we give the gods things they want, right? and then in return they give us the things we want, which we tell them in prayer. So it's a kind of give and take, do of des. Right? Socrates clearly finds that ridiculous. Right? And I think Thomas would totally agree with Socrates. That's ridiculous. For one thing, our sacrifices don't benefit God in any way. It's entirely to our benefit, not his, that by sacrifice we express our subjection to him and we honor him as our creator and our highest good. But also, quite generally, according to Thomas, religion or holiness is the virtue by which we hand ourselves over to the worship and the service of God. And prayer is part of that. It is part of that. 
In prayer, we hand our minds over to God, he says, subjecting our thoughts and our desires to him with reverence and, in a way, presenting them to him to use as he sees fit. All good prayer, I think we can say, has as its underlying motif, thy will be done. And I think if we understand the metaphysics of prayer, we see that it really can't be otherwise. That's what it has to be. And we see that the causality of prayer is indeed a very, very great dignity. Thank you.